You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Hi, this is Amanda, and you're listening to the Art of History podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the show. Our story this week features not only our first ever sculpture on this podcast, but also a possible conspiracy theory and several bad puns about arms. But first, I realized the other day that I have not introduced myself at the start of each episode, so I'm going to try and start doing that. I'm Amanda, I have a degree in art history that I do not use, and a knack for explaining things to people. If you're new to the show, the premise here is pretty simple. Each episode, I select a work of art that can tell us a story from the past. Today, we are looking at Laocoon and his sons, which is a Greek sculpture in the Hellenistic style. Or is it? I have posted the statue over on Instagram at Art of History Podcast for your viewing pleasure. While you're there, go ahead and why not give us a follow? It'll only save you time for future episodes. If you're turning to our friend Google to find the piece, Laocoon is spelled L-A-O-C-O-O-N. The second O, well, the third O, has the two little dots on top if you want to get fancy, but you really don't need them. You can just type that in your search bar and the sculpture in question will be the main thing that comes up. So what are we looking at? This is indeed a marble sculpture, nearly eight feet tall, although the figures themselves are not life-sized. A group of serpents binds three nude figures, a large man in the center of the group and two smaller male figures flanking him. The largest man has a terrified expression on his bearded face, and he gazes up at the sky, either in anguish or out of some pleading, desperate cry for help. His hair and beard curl in deeply carved tendrils, lending a contrast that contributes to the sculpture's dynamic tone. The two figures on his sides are not rendered at the same scale as him, that is, they don't have the same proportions. Their heads barely reach his chest. And yet, they don't exactly look like children because they do have some impeccable abs. Rather, they have that peculiar appearance of being miniature versions of clean-shaven adult men. If you've ever seen medieval paintings of babies, it's kind of like that, but this time they at least do look human. These two, I can tell you, are the central figure's sons. All three of them appear to frantically struggle in vain against the snakes, the largest of which is roughly the same thickness as the center man's arm. Rearing back in a desperate effort to free himself, he is shown at the moment when one of the powerful snakes is poised to deliver a strike kinda to his hip. The figure on the left already has a snake sinking its fangs into his side. No matter how much they twist and turn, the effect is that he and his father will remain entangled in a swirling mass of limbs. The son on the right has a chance to perhaps escape. His hand grasps a coiled serpent around his ankle in a gesture that suggests that he might be able to shake it off. 
based on surviving traces of paint on the central man's eyes, which you can't see but are available through scientific analysis, some scholars have argued that he was blinded by the bites of the snakes. Oh yeah, if you didn't know, many ancient Greek and Roman sculptures would have originally been painted. Imagine these snakes as a bright green and the blood drawn by their bites a deep red. It would definitely lend the work a different kind of frenzy. But by the time that this and similar sculptures would be dug up during the Renaissance, the paint would have been wiped away by the elements and by time. Knowing no better, artists in the 16th century took the bare stone at face value. We'll get to this guy a little bit later, but this is why Michelangelo and others worked in white marble. They were emulating what they believed to be the ancient aesthetic. But to the Greeks and Romans, bare stone would have looked bland and flawed. Here are some lines from Helen of Troy in a play by Euripides. My life and fortunes are a monstrosity, partly because of Hera, partly because of my beauty. If only I could shed my beauty and assume an uglier aspect, the way you would wipe color off a statue. The implication here is that stripping a statue of its color would have been, to the ancients, the same as disfiguring it. Nevertheless, to us, the marble-white Laocoon is considered one of the most beautiful pieces in Western art, and has long been thought to come from the Hellenistic period of Greek art. Hellenistic art is considered some of the most expressive, physically ideal, and beautiful in, yes, all of art history. I mean, depending on who you ask. Hellenistic art is broadly dated between the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BC and the conquest of the Greek world by the Romans in 31 BC. From Encyclopedia Britannica, Hellenistic sculptures are masterful displays of vigorous action and emotion, triumph, fury, despair, and the effect is achieved by exaggeration of anatomical detail and features and by a shrewd use of the rendering of hair and drapery to heighten the mood. All of this is true of the Laocoon, which takes its raw power as a work of art from the realistic depiction of movement that the sculptor or sculptors have created. However, there is some doubt as to when exactly it was carved, for reasons that we'll get to a bit later. The sculpture has been described as, quote, the prototypical icon of human agony in Western art. Human being the key word there. Unlike the agony often depicted in Christian art, showing the crucifixion of Jesus or the agonies of the martyrs, this suffering has no power, it is not redemptive, and there is no reward. Heads up, I'm about to butcher some German names, just warning you now. Despite all the agony, the sculpture is also beautiful. German art historian Johann Joachim Winkelmann wrote... <laughs> wrote on the Laocoon in the 18th century, remarking on the paradox of admiring physical beauty while looking at a scene of death and defeat. Likewise, the German philosopher Gotthold Ephraim Lessing argues in an essay that the Laocoon's artists could not realistically depict the physical suffering of the victims, as this would be too painful. Instead, they had to express that suffering while retaining beauty. So that's a bit about the aesthetics, the appearance of the sculpture. But what about the story behind it? The myth of Laocoon, a Trojan priest, varies across classical Greek sources. The story ostensibly comes from the Greek epics on the Trojan Wars, though it is notably not mentioned by Homer, whose name is synonymous with the Trojan War because of his works The Iliad and Odyssey. 
It was, however, the subject of a now-lost tragedy by Sophocles, and was mentioned in passing by other Greek writers. The events around the attack by the serpents vary considerably, but the most famous narrative is in Virgil's Aeneid. Note, too, that this dates from between 29 and 19 BC, which is possibly later than the sculpture. In Book 2 of the epic, which details the end of the Trojan War, Laocoon was a priest of Poseidon, living in Troy. You actually probably know part of this version. A wooden horse was said to have been used by the Greeks to enter the city of Troy and win the war. Laocoon, when the horse was discovered in front of the city, suspects, correctly, that this is a Greek trap. Attempting to expose the ruse of the Trojan horse, Laocoon strikes it with his spear. He and his two sons, Antiphantes and Thimbraeus, are seized by sea serpents, which drag them down to their deaths. The Trojans interpret this as divine punishment for rejecting a divine gift. In this version, the sea snakes were actually sent by Poseidon and Athena, or Apollo, to help conceal the Greeks' trick. To appease the gods, though, the Trojans drag the horse into their city. In Sophocles' version, on the other hand, Laocoon was a priest of Apollo, who should have been celibate but had married anyway. In this account, the serpents were sent by Poseidon and killed only the two sons, leaving Laocoon himself alive to suffer. In other tellings of this naughty priest version, Laocoon himself was killed for sleeping with his wife in the temple of Poseidon, or for simply making a sacrifice in the temple with his wife present. What's really interesting is that the different versions have rather different morals. Laocoon was either punished for being right in the first telling, or for doing wrong in the second. Which is worse? In at least one Greek telling of the story, the older son is able to escape, and the composition of our sculpture seems to allow for that possibility. So we know that the story was around for at least long enough for it to spread and be interpreted in different ways. But where does the sculpture come into play? The Roman author and natural philosopher Pliny the Elder included a mention of the Laocoon as part of a survey he wrote on Greek and Roman stone sculpture. This came from his encyclopedic work Natural History, the largest single work to have survived from the Roman Empire, which covered history, science, and the arts. He says of the Laocoon in Book 37, In the palace of the Emperor Titus, a work that may be looked upon as preferable to any other production in the art of painting or of statuary. It is sculpted from a single block, both the main figure as well as the children, and the serpents with their marvelous folds. This group was made in concert by three most eminent artists, Agisander, Polydorus, and Athenodorus, natives of Rhodes. Today, it's commonly thought that the three artists from Rhodes were actually copying a bronze sculpture from Pergamon. Today, it's commonly thought that the three artists from Rhodes were actually copying a bronze sculpture from Pergamon created about 200 BC. Pliny does not address this issue explicitly and suggests that he regards the Laocoon as the original. Pliny's description of the sculpture as, quote, a work to be preferred to all that the arts of painting and sculpture have produced, has led to a tradition that debated this claim that the sculpture is the greatest of all artworks. We'll fast forward now to the Renaissance, when educated people looked to the ancient world for inspiration in all areas art, architecture, science, and philosophy. They were familiar with Pliny's natural history and naturally longed for a glimpse at this greatest work of all time. 
But there was just one problem. No one had laid eyes on it for 1,500 years. In January 1506, an Italian landowner named Felice de Fridis ordered construction work in a vineyard on his property, which was on the slopes of Rome's Esquiline Hill. Finding Roman coins, stonework, and even statues was pretty common for anyone digging in Roman soil, but Fridis's workers' discovery on January 14th was extraordinary. They unearthed a sunken chamber containing a group of exquisite and sizable marble sculptures. It didn't take long for news of the discovery to reach Pope Julius II, who was, among other things, a keen collector of Roman treasures. The Pope sent a delegation to inspect the dig site. This included his architect, Giuliano de Sangallo, and his 11-year-old son, Francesco, and the sculptor Michelangelo, who at this time would have just begun his work at the Vatican. After gazing in awe upon the discovery, the men quickly identified the most striking of the sculptures, with Sangallo immediately declaring, this is the Laocoon of which Pliny wrote. Recalling the legendary dig decades later, Giuliano's 11-year-old son, then in his 70s, wrote in a letter, quote, I climbed down to where the statues were when immediately my father said, that is the Laocoon, which Pliny mentions. Then they dug the hole wider so that they could pull the statue out. As soon as it was visible, everyone started to draw, all the while discoursing on ancient things. Just, you know, guys being dudes, drawing some naked men and discoursing on the ancient world. By March 1506, the work had been purchased by the Pope and was moved to the Vatican's Belvedere Courtyard newly designed by Donato Bramante. Today, it is still at the Vatican, and you can see it in the octagonal court of the Pius Clemente Museum. The sculpture's figures were remarkable to behold, but were not completely intact. The adult male figure was missing his right arm below the shoulder joint, and various fragments were missing from the two children. To this day, the son on the left lacks his right arm, while the figure of the right-hand son has its hand and some fingers missing. As part of their analysis, artists of the day came to sketch the work and proposed different orientations for the missing pieces of the grouping. Overseen by Bramante, an arms race was held in 1510, asking artists to propose the best model for Laocoon's missing right limb. Artists and connoisseurs debated how the missing parts should be interpreted, and one of the most vocal contestants was Michelangelo, who by now was knee-deep in his commission to paint the Sistine Chapel ceiling. A quick introduction to Michelangelo, who you might know from such iconic works as the Pieta, David, or his Last Judgment paintings, as well as the Sistine Chapel. He was an apprentice to the Florentine painter Domenico Ghirlandaio, where he learned to paint frescoes before studying in the sculpture gardens of Lorenzo de' Medici. He was not an uncontroversial guy, getting special permission from the Catholic Church to study cadavers to gain an insight into anatomy. All of these elements of his training combined to influence Michelangelo's distinctive style, what's been described as a, quote, muscular precision and reality combined with an almost lyrical beauty. This type of contrast summed him up as a person as well. He had a famously quick temper and bouts of depression, but also wrote over 300 poems and sonnets by the end of his life. Michelangelo is sometimes noted as the first artist to achieve widespread fame and wealth during his lifetime. He was also the first to live long enough to see the publication of not one, but two biographies about him. 
Michelangelo would eventually die on February 18th, 1564, just before his 89th birthday, and he would be mourned as the father and master of all the arts. But let's return back to 1510 when he's alive and well, and to the Laocoon and our call to arms. <laughs> Michelangelo suggested that the missing right arm was originally bent back over the shoulder to indicate the priest's frenzied attempt to free himself. Others, however, believed it was more appropriate to show the right arm extended outwards in a heroic gesture. This view was shared by the sculptor Raphael, who submitted his own design, even though he was also acting as a judge in the contest. I need to take another moment here to emphasize one thing. Michelangelo hated Raphael. In 1508, an ambassador had erroneously made an announcement that the Sistine Chapel was going to be painted not by Michelangelo, but by Raphael. Raphael was then attracting much praise and adoration for his carving work in the papal apartments, which themselves clearly showed Michelangelo's influence. Michelangelo, in turn, lost several commissions to the younger Raphael, leading to a resentment that just kept growing as Raphael kept getting rave reviews. He would from then on make Raphael, quote, bear the brunt of his unrelenting envy, contempt, and anger. Perhaps a rivalry between these two was inevitable, given that they were both considered geniuses, were both working on similar projects in the same city at the same time, but scholars have noted that Michelangelo's difficult personality probably played a part too. Quote, Unlike the easygoing, pleasure-loving Raphael, Michelangelo was regarded as a solitary curmudgeon who had stormy relations with his patrons and assistants. He was also a devout Catholic who lived a Spartan existence, sleeping in his clothes and boots and eating more out of necessity than pleasure. While Raphael was something of a Casanova, Michelangelo is rumored to have lived a life of monk-like chastity, struggling with his repressed homosexuality. Michelangelo may have been as envious of Raphael's popularity and social skills as much as his artistic reputation." End quote. Raphael was widely loved during his lifetime and did have an influence on later generations of artists. Maybe you've heard of the pre-Raphaelites of the mid-1800s. But today, the average person is probably more likely to know him as a cartoon turtle than as a painter and a sculptor. However, in recent years, Michelangelo's reputation has arguably surpassed Raphael's, and he is admired for his genius as a sculptor as well as a painter. I guess we will just all have to visit Rome to judge for ourselves. Anyway, circling back to the armed conflict of 1510, the pose in which Laocoon's missing arm was outstretched in a heroic gesture was favored by most of the entrants to the contest and was chosen as the winner. So Michelangelo, we can only imagine, was left to grind his teeth in a dark corner somewhere. The specific winning limb by Jacopo Sansovino was used in copies of the Laocoon, of which there were many, but it was not attached to the original group, which remained as it was until 1532. I'm not sure if you can hear it, but there is a trash pickup happening just outside my window. So there it is. So I'm going to take a little break. And when we come back, we will pick right back up with our sculpture. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. 
When I was ready to start podcasting, I read all the articles I could find on how to get started, which equipment to use, and so on. The one thing they all had in common was recommending Anchor as the best tool for first-time podcasters to get going. If you haven't heard of Anchor, it really is the simplest way to make a podcast. It's from the folks at Spotify, and it comes with everything you could possibly need to record and edit right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can easily distribute your show on listening platforms like Spotify, of course, but also Apple and Google Podcasts and many more. You can also receive sponsorships with no minimum listenership required. It is truly everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, it's totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, the trash men have moved on and we're back. <laughs> so we're in 1532 when the winning limb has been decided on for the Laocoon, but it has not been attached to the original group. In 1532, however, a pupil of Michelangelo's named Giovanni Antonio Montresoli added an even more straight version of an outstretched arm to the actual sculpture, which has remained in place until modern times. I'm sure Michelangelo loved every minute of this. The piece was subsequently restored several times over the following centuries. From 1725 to 1727, Agostino Cornacchini added a section to the younger son's arm. And in 1816, Antonio Canova, quote, tidied up the group, quote, without being convinced by the correctness of the additions, but wishing to avoid a controversy. The interest in preserving and redesigning the Laocoon to present it in the most correct way tells us that the sculpture has meant many things to many people across many ages. To the Romans, it represented the history of their predecessors. To Renaissance scholars, it exemplified the energy and the beauty of the Hellenistic style that they so greatly admired. Artists and scholars from the 16th to the 19th centuries revered the classical age and sought to bring its values into their own time. The work also had a visible impact on artists and sculptors, most notably Michelangelo. This can be seen in the pose and sublimated emotion of many of his later works, such as The Rebellious Slave and The Dying Slave. Several of the male nudes and the figure of Haman in the Sistine Chapel ceiling draw on the Laocoon in their form. Raphael, too, used the face of Laocoon for Homer in his Parnassus frescoes in the Raphael rooms at the Vatican, expressing blindness rather than pain. These are just two of many artists who drew on the work for inspiration. As the Laocoon was disseminated across Europe in prints as well as in bronze copies. In 1798, Napoleon took the original Laocoon from the Vatican and brought it to Paris, where it was displayed in the Louvre with other objects from Italy, as shown in an 1805 painting by Hubert Robert. After Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo in 1815, many of the works he had plundered for France were returned, and in 1816, the Laocoon was returned to the Vatican. It became so iconic that near the end of Charles Dickens' 1843 A Christmas Carol, 
Ebenezer Scrooge self-describes, quote, making a perfect Laocoon of himself with his stockings in his hurry to dress on Christmas morning. Even modern artists recognize the value of the whole sculptural group, which offers a variety of elements that are useful for studying composition and anatomy. Both young and experienced artists test themselves by studying the lights and the shadows on the Laocoon. One of my favorite studies is from the early 20th century sculptor Alberto Giacometti, who made two drawings of the Laocoon taken from a plaster cast displayed at the Louvre until 1960. I have this one posted on the Instagram, and I just love the progression from the original piece through the faithful Renaissance interpretations to the frenzied studies of a modern sculptor concerned with motion and feeling in quite a different way than his predecessors. Since 1506, however, questions have lingered about the sculpture. For one thing, despite the quick identification of the work, some aspects did not line up with Pliny the Elder's descriptions. The sculpture that was found was carved not from a single block of marble, as he had written in Natural History, but instead made from as many as seven or eight different pieces. The sculpture was also not found in the house of Emperor Titus, but rather inside cisterns that, by 1548, would have been identified as part of Emperor Trajan's baths. Scholars to this day have continued to puzzle over the identity of the maker as well, when it was made, and why artists would be drawn to depict such anguish. Was the statue Greek or a Roman copy? The view that it is an original work of the 2nd century BC now has few, if any, supporters, although many still see it as a copy of such a work made in the early imperial period, probably a copy of a bronze original. Whatever the case, the Laocoon was probably commissioned for the home of a wealthy Roman, possibly of the imperial family. Dates that have been suggested for the statue now range from about 200 BC to the 70s AD, though dates between 27 BC and 68 AD are usually what you'll see. One of these questions about the legendary missing arm, I am happy to say, has been solved. In 1905, Ludwig Pollock, an archaeologist, art dealer, and the director of the Museo Baracco in Rome, discovered a fragment of a marble arm in a builder's yard in Rome, very close to where the group of statues containing the Laocoon had been found almost 400 years earlier. In size and style, it was similar enough to the Laocoon that Pollock presented it to the Vatican Museums. It remained stashed away in their storerooms until 1957, when the museum's authorities finally announced that the fragment was likely to be Laocoon's famous missing arm, and the fragment was attached to the piece. The arm is bent back, as 450 years before Michelangelo had suggested it should be. In the 1980s, the statue was dismantled and reassembled, with the Pollock arms still incorporated. The restored portions of the children's arms and hands were removed. In the course of disassembling it, it was possible to observe breaks, cuttings, metal tendons, and dowel holes, which suggested that in the ancient times, a more compact three-dimensional pyramid grouping of the three figures had been used, or at least attempted. The more open composition of the grouping, where we see them along a single plane, has been interpreted as, quote, the result of serial reworkings by Roman imperial as well as Renaissance and modern craftsmen. Perhaps they couldn't decide on how it should be displayed either. Now, I would normally be immensely comfortable leaving the story here with Michelangelo being vindicated for his ingenuity 400 years after his death. 
But that's not all. I have a possible true crime angle for you. Michelangelo's close involvement with the Laocoon and its influence on his later works have always added a touch of the dramatic to this story and to the Laocoon itself. I remember my late art history professor, Laura Wingard, telling us the tale with unmasked joy in her face. The drama was her favorite part. And she was not the only one. In 2005, a Columbia University art historian named Lynn Catterson advanced a theory that the sculptor of the Laocoon was, in fact, Michelangelo himself. As she puts it, he had the motives, the means, and the opportunity. Catterson looks to a 1501 pen sketch of a male torso by Michelangelo, which she argues shows stylistic similarities with the sculpture, which at that point had not been discovered. The sketch in question depicts the rear of a male torso that she says resembles the back of the Laocoon. I have that sketch as well as a drawing of it superimposed onto the back of the sculpture on the Instagram. Catterson contends that Michelangelo secretly created and hid the sculptural grouping, which was subsequently, quote, found and attributed to the Greeks or the Romans. He might have done this to see if he was such a master sculptor that he could fool his contemporaries, for whom he admittedly did seem to have some disdain. And if that was his intent, then mission accomplished. Quote, that the Laocoon was carved by Michelangelo explains why then and why now its effect is mesmerizing, Catterson has said. It would also explain why his design for the missing arm so closely resembled the one that was ultimately found. So picture this. It's the perfect crime, right? All you would have to do <laughs> was secretly complete an eight-foot-tall sculpture, then break it apart just enough to make it appear old, hide it undetected under a vineyard that you don't own in Rome, seal it into a chamber, and then wait patiently until it was discovered. Then get a competition underway, submit an entry to said competition, and then ultimately lose when people decide that your design for completing your own sculpture isn't heroic enough. From then, you just have to include elements of your forgery into your later works as inspiration. To me, it just doesn't track, but Catterson's arguments are worth considering on their own merits. So let's dive a little deeper. You have your possible motive to prove you are the greatest sculptor of all time. On to means and opportunity. As a young artist under the patronage of Lorenzo de' Medici, Michelangelo would have witnessed the Medici family's willingness to spend considerable amounts of money on ancient Greek and Roman art which he would have then had ample opportunity to study and perhaps try to recreate. Michelangelo was also known to be a manic worker, and Catterson argues that he would have had the time and space to create the Laocoon secretly. He had his own house, which included ample workspace, and a trusted assistant, Piero d'Argenta. He also had access to Greek marble, found in excavations around Rome. And for means... Recent scholarship on bank withdrawals and deposits between 1498 and 1501 apparently suggests that Michelangelo was buying large chunks of marble that cannot be linked to any documented finished sculptures, while he was simultaneously accumulating substantial income that could not be accounted for. For that one, I don't know. Maybe he was buying marble to practice on or to use for studies. Maybe he made some mistakes. And as for the income, maybe he had a side hustle, an OnlyFans, perhaps. 
To add a final nail in the coffin, Catterson even speaks to this being a possible pattern, pointing to Michelangelo's documented knack for copying and forging in general. The Renaissance chronicler of the lives of the artist, Giorgio Vasari, wrote that as an assistant to Ghirlandaio, Michelangelo had counterfeited drawings of, quote, various old masters and returned his copies of the works to their respective owners instead of the originals. Critics of Catterson's theory do agree with me that the huge logistical and financial obstacles make this an improbable scheme. And with few options available for dating the sculpture itself, most historians conclude that it is either the direct product of or a Roman era copy of the Hellenistic era. Michelangelo has captured our imaginations for decades now. Did anyone else read from the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankweiler as a kid? Remember the excitement during the climax of that story? I think that is what's going on here. In the 10 years before Catterson published her theory in 2005, 17 discoveries of or attributions to Michelangelo had made national news, and then had been discredited or quickly forgotten. William Wallace, a professor at Washington University in St. Louis and the author of several books on Michelangelo, said upon hearing of this theory, quote, My first reaction was, oh, come on, not another. However, the more I thought about it, the more intrigued I became. I think this one has the greatest lasting power. And I think that has as much to do with the staying power of the Laocoon on its own as it does with the mythos around Michelangelo. It draws you into the action, tugs on your heartstrings, and poses as many questions just through its appearance as it does when you start to delve into its story. Johann Goethe said the following in his essay upon the Laocoon, which I think sums it up. A true work of art, like a work of nature, never ceases to open boundlessly before the mind. We examine, we are impressed with it, it produces its effect, but it can never be all comprehended, still less can its essence, its value, be expressed in words. I hope you enjoyed the first sculpture we've covered on the show. I felt like it had to be a splashy one to be our inaugural three-dimensional work, and I hope that it didn't disappoint. I know that many of you prefer paintings over sculptures, so don't worry, we will probably do a heavy ratio of like seven paintings to three sculptures on this show. But as always, if you have any suggestions, comments, questions, concerns about this episode, or what you'd like to hear next, I would love to hear from you. You can leave a comment or send me a message on the Instagram at Art of History Podcast. Shoot me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com. We are also on TikTok at Art of History Pod or Twitter at Art Historic Pod. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.